Welcome to episode 377 with my guest, Dr. Susan David. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Still getting over a little bit of a cold. I uh, hope that doesn't sound too annoying. I always hate it when you're listening to somebody and uh, and you're just thinking, when are they going to blow their nose? This is driving me fucking crazy. Uh, this is a Mental Illness Happy Hour. Uh, it's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Um, the website and my Twitter and Instagram handle are uh, mentalpod. Uh, obviously, the website would be mentalpod.com. There's got to be a more succinct way of given those three pieces of information without repeating mental pod. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get some grant money and look into that. Uh, oh, want to remind you, those of you living in the Twin Cities, uh, let's see, this is airing, this episode is airing Friday, uh, April 6th, tomorrow night, Saturday, April 7th, if you live in the Twin Cities uh, areas, uh, areas, in the Twin Cities area, Say that fast 10 times. I'm doing two live podcast recordings at Sisyphus Brewery, uh, one show at 4 o'clock uh, and one show at 8 o'clock, and I've got some great guests. I've got uh, Nora McInerney from Terrible Thanks for Asking and um, a great stand-up comedian, uh, Cy Amundsen, and uh, I'm really looking forward to chatting with both of them and getting to see you guys that, that come out to the live shows and um, getting to look you in the face and say, uh, hey, what's your name? Followed by awkward silence. No, the conversations are, are, I get to have really great conversations with people. Uh, you know, it's funny when I meet listeners, sometimes they'll say, you know, this must be weird for you because I know so much about you and you don't know anything about me. And I always say to them, no, I know more about you than you think I do because if you're even a fairly regular listener to the podcast, I know that you are a seeker. I know that you're sensitive. I know that um, you struggle. Um, I know that uh, your favorite color is yellow. Maybe not that one. Um but there's a lot of things um, that kind of immediately take conversation into a second phase where if it was just somebody on an elevator, um, there would be that weird thing of, I don't know anything about this person. So I, all of that is a really long way of saying I love doing the live events and getting to meet people and, um, and say hi and getting to hear the laughter. You know, that's one of the things I miss about doing stand-up is getting to hear uh, the laughs. And speaking of that, somebody posted on Facebook. Um, how did they put it? Oh, um, I, I, had, I had done some type of joke. I think the, the joke was something along the lines of, um, I'm looking for uh, a way to turn pro at taking things too seriously. Um, and this person wrote... Normally, I don't enjoy your humor, but that really cracked me up. Any 
sentence that starts with normally I don't like your blank. I don't know if anything can follow that to not make that a shitty thing to say. Um, you know, maybe I don't normally enjoy your humor, but here's a million dollars. That I would go, I'm so glad you hate my humor. But, uh, and there, here's the other one. Oh, I saw your, uh, you know, your, your such and such thing. It was actually really good. Yeah, actually. Do you want to compliment somebody? Remove the word actually, because what that says is, you doing something of quality surprised me. And I'm guilty of doing both of those. Um, I am coming to Europe, uh, European guests, in mid-July. And uh, I'm going to land in Ireland. And I've got a few guests lined up already. Um, but I want to... Um, I want to go see where I'm from. I want to go see. I want to go see the birth of the sadness. <laughs> the sadness and where where the coping skill of staring out the window with uh, one's mouth open uh became an essential part of the Gilmartin toolkit. Um and so that's going to be in mid-July. And then I, I want to go to a couple of other countries, and I'm not sure exactly where. Um, I'm thinking about uh, possibly Spain. Um, I know we've got listeners kind of scattered all over the place, so if you guys have any ideas, one of the things I do want to do is I want to go someplace where it's hot and the water is super still and super clear, and it's just like, you know, like how I'm saying, it's like that, you know, in Greece where it's all bleached white. Yeah, that would be Greece. You fucking idiot. But I don't know if I necessarily want to go to Greece. Maybe Croatia. I hear Croatia is beautiful. Um, and and I, I kind of want to find a female friend to come with me, but. I'm afraid, I'm afraid to commit to that because it's going to be a stretch of time that I'm traveling. And, you know, if you find out on day two of, you know, an 11 day trip or however long it is that you and this person don't really jive, that you're, that you're good acquaintances, but, uh, you can't stand to hear, the breath come out of their mouth one more time. Uh, I, I, so I don't know what to do because the last time I went and I recorded European listeners, I loved it. But about a week in, this feeling of loneliness and sadness kind of hit me. And, and I don't want to experience that again. So I don't know if it's unhealthy, what I'm looking for. And, a female friend of mine, when I said I was I was going to uh, Europe to tape, uh, record non-American listeners, she went, oh, take me, take me. And I said, yeah, I think that would be fun. And then afterwards, I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Is that a mistake to, to want to do that? I don't know. I don't know. I, do you guys get tired of second guessing this shit out of your, out of your lives? I don't know. But anyway, 
Um, I'm trying to raise money uh, to take this this trip, and uh, the podcast budget has been struggling lately, so I'm putting a link on the website if you um, would like to contribute to that. There's a GoFundMe thing that a nice listener started about uh, nine months ago to start funding this thing, and we're about, uh, I think about one-fifth of the way there. Um, there you have it. There you have it. Um, I got a tweet from somebody that said, uh, your podcast has been a comfort through mine and my sister's depression. Now my youngest sister has fallen into it too, so please keep the good vibes coming while she is in the hospital and make an awfulsome joke for me. And um, uh, if you're listening, I just want to say I hope your youngest sister gets the help that she needs. And uh, if if she's listening, um, sending you some love. And it sucks that all three of you are having to, to go through uh, depression. But if one more sister gets sad, you guys might qualify for a group discount. So... And you also might want to look into what kind of music is playing around the house. Do you guys have Morrissey on a loop? I can't think of a I can't think of a more current, sad, melancholy musician than than Morrissey. So there's my awfulsome joke. I hope you enjoyed it. Well, I don't normally enjoy your humor, but I'll make an exception this time. Uh, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Pooey, and she writes, uh, I don't know if this is an awfulsome moment or a struggle in a sentence, but I laughed so hard yesterday after I realized I had spent 10 minutes anxiously sitting at my desk at work trying to sneakily take my pill for anxiety because I was so afraid someone would see me and think I'm doing drugs. That's right. She had anxiety about being seen taking her pill for anxiety. Uh, I had a really good support group meeting tonight. I'm recording a night earlier than I, than I normally do. It's Wednesday night. And my Wednesday night support group is a mixed meeting and the focus is on fear of intimacy. And man, when people open up about fear of intimacy, it goes so much deeper than just, um, you know, uh, drugs and, and, and alcohol. Cause so often there's like a childhood wound in there that's really, really raw. And, um, it was just so beautiful, all these people opening up and, and there was love and laughter and tears and and uh yeah, and at one point I thought, I hope I don't fart and ruin this. <laughs> I wish I could lie and say that that didn't cross my mind, but that is my biggest fear is I'm going to reach down to get a drink of water um and yeah, and it's going to be at a moment when there's like library-like silence in the meeting. And then I will either have to never go to that meeting again or own it in a way that makes everybody laugh, like take a big bow or I don't know what the fuck. Some days don't you just need a break from your brain. But anyway, the point of this meeting tonight is so many people come into this support group with just deep, deep shame. And I was one of those people. Um, and 
after I started processing the stuff that happened to me as a kid, um, and I started to heal, my psychiatrist said to me one time, you know, I just want to commend you on all the work you've done in healing this trauma that happened to you as a kid because you have turned and looked into the jaws of the monster. And it had never occurred to me that there was even a sliver of bravery in anything that I was doing because all I could ever see of myself was that I was undisciplined, I was weak, I was impulsive, I was embarrassing, um, you know, on and on and on and on. And so I want to say to anybody out there who is in the process of getting help or has even paused to think, maybe I should ask for help, that is the, the move of a fucking warrior. It doesn't take bravery to keep running from an issue the rest of your life, but to stop and look at something that is scary is, it's fucking badass, man. It is badass, and I can see it in other people, but it's really hard. I think everybody's that way. We have trouble seeing it in ourselves. Um, ah, there was so much, so much good stuff there tonight. Still going on dates. Been on a few coffee dates. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking about putting in my uh, in my profile. Um, do you fall somewhere between? I can't stop thinking about you, and if you touch me again, my skin is going to crawl. This is an awfulsome moment, and this was filled out by the twitching bipolar girl in the room. She writes, I'm currently spearheading a week dedicated to destigmatizing mental illness at my college. However, I have bipolar too, um, and then parentheses, not publicly known. And since about a week ago, I've been getting into a deep depressive state. My meds for ADD and bipolar are giving me hypomanic moments. So, by day, I'm in meetings or hosting events with peer counseling groups to, quote, destigmatize mental illness. And by night, I've been giving, I've been going back to contemplating my own death, old suicide notes, and self-harming behavior. But you know, publicly, I've been a great advocate reminder, reminder for others that everything is treatable and to get help. When I myself am not reaching out to get any, just one of the many masks I wear, oh well. To which I want to say, this isn't an, isn't an example of a weakness in you. This is an example of the strength of mental illness. Because every person I know in managing their mental illness or their addiction or their trauma or whatever their battle is, every person I know falls short of their expectations of how they should handle it. And... It sounds to me like you are a fucking warrior because you're not running from it, you know? You're not running from it. You've become an advocate for it. You're writing about it here, and um, it's a process. So don't beat yourself up. Leave the beating yourself up to me, please. That's my thing. Wouldn't it be great if I could get residuals on talking mean to yourself? 
Hey, I want to tell you guys about a sponsor we have for this week's episode. Uh, it's called Care Of. Uh, you know the importance of a healthy diet, and sometimes it's, it's hard to get all the nutrients that your body needs for long-term health. And Care Of is a monthly subscription vitamin service made from effective quality ingredients that are personally tailored to your exact needs. Um, I checked it out and I ordered them. Uh, you go online, you take this quiz and it asks you about your diet, your health goals, your lifestyle choices, and then they help you decide what vitamins and supplements would work for you. And I really love the idea of that because a lot of times you may be taking two things that overlap in what they have and having them put this packet together for you and they're individually wrapped, which is nice, you know, so you can grab one and be on the go. You don't have to open individual bottles every day, but it's nice to have that kind of figured out for you. Um, your subscription, uh, includes a 30-day supply. It's a box that has all these individually wrapped packets, and it's all for about 20, 20% less than uh, similar brands at uh, local drug and health food stores. So uh, for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, visit TakeCareOf.com and enter MENTAL. That's TakeCareOf.com and enter the code MENTAL for 25% off your first month of personalized vitamins. We are also sponsored by BetterHelp.com, which is a fantastic source for online uh, counseling. I've been doing it for a long time. I love my therapist, uh, Donna, and um, the level of, of expertise and compassion that she has is second to none. And... Um, Everybody I know that has has tried BetterHelp.com has had a, a great experience with it. And if they have uh, not matched up perfectly with the therapist they were assigned the first time, they eventually found a therapist that did work for them. Um, because it is a matter of uh, of chemistry sometimes, finding the right client and, uh, and therapist combination. But... Uh, Go to betterhelp.com slash mental, fill out a questionnaire, and then they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's uh, right for you. Uh, I'm a big fan of online counseling, and you need to be over 18. Okay. This is a vacation argument that I just love. Uh, this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Hansel and Gretel, and he writes, uh, My parents, my sister, and I went to London uh, a couple of summers ago. While we were eating a shitty American-style restaurant uh, for qu a quick lunch, we were eating a shitty American-style restaurant for a quick lunch while walking around. Um, I guess there's no at there. They were literally eating the restaurant. That would be shitty. Uh, the topic of my parents' wedding came up, an event that has never been discussed too often. I'd done the math in the previous year or two and realized that I was conceived before the wedding, a big no-no in my hyper-Catholic family. While we were eating, the topic of their honeymoon came up, which they had never really talked about before. They only went a few hours away for a weekend, and I remarked that it was not just them, but I was also there parentheses, as a fetus. My sister, who was in her mid-teens at the time, had not known about this event. My mom began to break down. 
She had been shamed by the Catholic Church and was almost not allowed to marry in the Catholic Church because she was pregnant and still feels shame for my conception. My father, the great person that he is, watching my mother on the verge of tears, tells me that I am lucky I was not aborted. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom. People-pleasing. Dread. Silent, invisible. Just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization. Depersonalization. The suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get... You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scottface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. And I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Dr. Susan uh, David, who um, you're on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. Uh, so do you train uh, psychiatrists how to do talk therapy or? No, most of my work is in research. So I'm a trained clinical psychologist, but most of my current work is in research and writing and really disseminating ideas. Um, But my background is as a psychologist. Uh, You just did a TED Talk that has gone beyond viral. Uh, A clip of it has gotten uh, over 17 million downloads. And how long ago did it post? In one week. In one week. In one week. That's mind-blowing. The topic uh, that that you uh, speak of, talk about. Absolutely. So the TED Talk, if people want to look it up, it's called The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage. And it's based on some of the ideas that I articulate more fully in my book, Emotional Agility. Which is a fantastic book. There's so many things you touch on uh, in that book that I feel like I haven't read in, in other books. And if you don't mind, I would love to have you kick things off by reading an excerpt from uh, from your book. Absolutely. So I'm going to read in a chapter which is about showing up to our emotions, and it's called Choosing Willingness. We want life to be as dazzling and painless as possible. But life, on the other hand, has a way of humbling us, and heartbreak is built into our agreement with the world. We are young until we are not. We are healthy until we are not. We are with those we love until we are not. Life's beauty is inseparable from its fragility. One of the greatest human triumphs is to choose to make room in our hearts for both the joy and the pain and to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. This means seeing feelings not as being good or bad, but just as being. Yes, there is this relentless assumption in our culture that we need to do something when we have inner turmoil. We must struggle to fix it, control it, exert brute force willpower over it, and remain positive. Often what we really need to do, though, is also what is most simple and obvious, and that is to just welcome these inner experiences, to breathe into them, and to learn their contours without racing for the exits. Amen. (laughs) A-fucking-man. Uh... You mentioned in the book, too, that there is science 
behind some of this. What what have you learned in uh, doing your research that backs up some of the things that you uh, talk about in your book? Absolutely. So a core part of the message, a core part of the way that I describe emotional agility is that it's really about being able to be with ourselves in ways that are curious, compassionate, and courageous, um, but also to recognize that our emotions contain incredibly important data, but they're not directions. The directions that we have are our values. And so a lot of the research that I speak to is firstly research that shows that often in our culture, and I reference this in the passage I've just read, often in our culture, there's this idea that we should just be positive. And so a lot of my research has found, for instance, I did a survey of 70,000 people, and I found that a third of us judge ourselves or shame ourselves for having what are often normal human emotions, uh, grief or sadness or a sense of loss. And what that does very often is it gets us into a struggle with ourselves where we try to chase happiness or we try to chase false positivity. So you asked about the research. Some of the research, for instance, shows that people who have expectations around what their happiness should be, that over time they become less happy. Uh, There's also research that shows that when we instead are compassionate and open ourselves up to our emotions, um, but also try to label our emotions effectively, there's a difference between stress, for instance, versus disappointment, versus um, feelings of real overwhelm. And in, in our society, we often use these very broad brushstrokes to label emotions. But we know that when we get more granular with our emotions, what it does is it actually shapes our intentions and our goals and our actions on the ground. So that's just some of the research. Uh, the book itself is both very practical, but it's also very strongly research-based. Uh, talk some more. I'm just going to adjust your mic a tiny bit. Talk some more about the importance of uh, values in achieving emotional and mental health. Uh, I One of the things that... that I believe is that when we're in a place of fear, it's so hard to trust in doing the right thing or in being vulnerable. And then so often the very thing we fear almost winds up coming true because we are taking inauthentic actions because we don't trust it things are going to be okay if we lead a principled life. Yeah, so I think this is critical, again, connecting with what I'd mentioned earlier about this focus on suppressing or pushing aside emotions, often in the service of what is false positivity, is we know that there's this very powerful effect uh, called amplification. When we push our emotions aside, they come back, they come back stronger, and they catch us off guard. And in you know, a very practical way, we've all had that experience of wanting that piece of chocolate cake in the refrigerator, but trying not to think about it. And that chocolate cake comes back bigger and bolder. And in fact, we start dreaming about it. And so one of the things that I talk about in the book is the idea that our difficult emotions actually are functional. They, they, they might not be comfortable and, and they're not comfortable. But often our difficult emotions point to things that we care about. Um, We care about about fairness or we care about equity or being seen or making a difference in the world. And so often what we do when we struggle with our emotions is we try to push those emotions aside 
Whereas actually what we can be doing is learning from them that the emotions contain signposts to things that we care about. And if we can start surfacing what is that signpost for me, what is the value for me, then what we can do is we can start moving out of our heads into our lives where we start taking small, they might be difficult, they might be tiny steps for ourselves, but that are aligned with our values. So let me give you an example. Someone who's feeling very socially anxious might say something like, you know, I'm fearful of going to the party, so I'm just going to stay at home. And that in the book, I describe it as being hooked. It's being emotionally inagile. So your thoughts, your emotions, your stories are driving your actions. If that person uh, connects with the idea that growing or being connected is actually part of that emotion of anxiety, of social anxiety, what they might be doing is they might be noticing the emotion but recognizing that the value of connection is something that actually is really important. And so we are able then in a compassionate way to go to the party, even if it's difficult, because we're guided by our values. And just to be clear, you know, what this does is it moves us away from the feeling that we've got to brute force our way through life. And instead, our values start freeing us up to take steps that are congruent with how we want to live. Uh, give us some more examples of uh, the the values that you're you're talking about to to make it more concrete for uh, the listener who is uh, might be listening and saying I I don't really understand how how the two connect. So let me give you a, a you know I'm traveling at the moment I'm in Los Angeles and I live in Boston and so one of the things that I've been experiencing over the past couple of days is guilt because I've got young children and I'm away from home and my daughter was really upset when I left. So we could look at that guilt and we could say something like, um, well, I shouldn't feel guilty because you know I'm doing stuff that's important. Um, but what that's doing is it's trying to push away or judge ourselves for having the emotion. Instead, what I could say is, what is this guilt a signpost of for me? The guilt is a signpost that I value being a present and connected parent and that at the moment I'm hugely busy with this TED talk and with all the stuff that's going on and that there is that presence and connectedness that I need to make a tweak around, make a change around. And so that doesn't mean Present, that I don't work. Right, presence and connectedness with, with my children, with okay. my children and 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 having them feel that they're seen and connected with. And so that doesn't mean that I don't work. It doesn't mean that I should be guilty, that my emotions are right, that my emotions are fact, that I'm a bad mom, but rather my emotions are data, not directives. Okay? What are the data? The data are that I feel guilt because I value presence and connectedness. So what does it mean I can do? It means that I can take active steps when I'm in Los Angeles, as an example, to when I call my kids, make sure that I'm not multitasking while I'm doing it, to truly listen into them around their day, to be present. So this is a very simple example, but it's trying to convey this idea that instead of 
becoming judgy about the guilt or treating the guilt as fact, the guilt serves as a signpost to a change that we can make in our lives. So it, it sounds like uh, nuance is an important uh, aspect in uh, dealing with uh, our emotions. If we're going to use them as signposts, instead of doing the black and white catastrophizing, I'm a terrible mom, I should quit what I do for a living, uh, otherwise uh, I'm, I'm failing them, or just not thinking about it. Absolutely. There's a beautiful body of research on what is called emotion granularity. And the idea behind this is that when we become more nuanced with our emotion, when the first emotion we might be feeling is we say, I'm so angry, I'm just so angry. And then you're starting to say to yourself, you know, what are two other options here? I feel disappointed or I feel sad. What that does, that nuance, it actually starts to um, activate what is called the readiness potential in our brains. It allows us to truly understand the cause of our emotion and what the emotion points to and start taking active, active steps around it. So if somebody's experiencing emotion, uh, walk me through how they would investigate that. Let's assume it's somebody that has never really done much self-reflection, has never been to therapy, but has uh, an anger issue. Where where might they begin to explore what's underneath the anger? So in the book, I talk about four critical aspects to this and some very practical strategies. The first is what I call showing up. And what I mean by showing up is instead of being harsh on ourselves or judgmental about ourselves or saying, you know, I'm angry with my boss, but I shouldn't be angry because at least I've got a job. And so we rationalize away our emotions. Or that min minimize. Or minimize yeah. or, or push them aside. And we do this to ourselves and we do it to people we love. We do it to our children. So that instead of doing this, what is really powerful is ending struggle with our emotions by opening our hearts to what is. So I call this showing up in the book, and it's this idea that we can show up with compassion and, and notice our emotions. A second aspect that I talk about is stepping out, where we need to recognize that we're feeling an emotion, but the emotion isn't fact. And so this is difficult when you are consumed by anger or sadness. So some very practical strategies. Often what we do is we'll say things like, I am angry. I am sad. And if you think about that from a language perspective, what it does is it associates all of you, 100% of you, with the sadness. And it's very difficult to make values-aligned choices when you are defined by your sadness. There's this beautiful uh, idea that Viktor Frankl speaks to uh, Viktor Frankl survived the Nazi death camps, and he writes this idea that between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And it's in that choice that lies our growth and freedom. When we are driven by our emotion, there's no space between stimulus and response. I'm angry, so I'm going to act out. I'm anxious, so I'm going to stay at home. I'm going to avoid and that experience is understandable, but it might not be values aligned for you. So when we start creating this space where we start saying, instead of I am X, I'm noticing that I'm feeling X. I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad. I'm noticing the urge to stay at home. 
I'm noticing the thought that I am. It sounds very simple, but it's incredibly powerful. You noticing the thought, the emotion for what it is, a thought or an emotion. It's not a fact. It's not a direction. It's a thought or an emotion. So that's practical. It, it sounds very much like uh, like emotional mindfulness. It is an aspect of emotional mindfulness. And then there are other things within that, which is try to label the emotion accurately. Um, instead of saying, I'm stressed, what are two other options? And then in the book, I talk about this idea of walking your why, which I've got a, as you can hear, a South African accent. So walking your why is like really kind of starting to connect with the heartbeat of what your emotion is directing you to, the value, and then how we can start making tiny tweaks, small changes that are values congruent. Uh, give me an example of the last one that you just mentioned. So an example is, for instance, what I spoke about with, with, my, with my children. Um, there's, this, there's this beautiful concept in psychology that is called social, uh, social snacking or psychological snacking. Often when people experience difficult emotions, it might be emotions that are very consuming around their mental health, but it might be about our work or we're in our, the wrong career or we're struggling in a relationship. Often what we do is we feel like we've got to make a dramatic change. And often dramatic changes are difficult, and so we avoid making them. And often what can become more powerful is saying, you know, what is a small values-aligned tweak, a small change that I can take that is powerful? So for instance, and again in a very practical way, someone who's struggling with their career Instead of giving up their entire career or giving up their entire job, they can start saying, you know, how can I start shifting the people that I connect with in my job? Or how can I put my hand up for some projects that I might not have otherwise put my hand up for? Or how in my relationship can I start either broadening my network or having a different conversation? So it's this idea that we can make changes but what's critical is that the changes aren't driven by our emotions mm. they are guided by our values yeah. and that makes having the conversation makes the change easier it allows us to access greater willpower it it sounds uh, also as if there there needs to be a an awareness of separating what we have control over from what we don't have control over and not mistaking the two. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting thing, I think, in particularly Western society. There's this idea that we can fix anything. You know, if you don't like your cell phone, you can buy a new cell phone. If you don't like your car, you can buy a new car. And so somehow we get into the same idea with our own, what's going on inside of us. You know, we can fix, there's something wrong. You know, we can fix, we can fix. And we start exerting this... Um, sense of, of judgment and, and control. And a very important part of well-being is being able to be compassionate with where we are, with recognizing that we're doing what we can with who we are, with what we've got, with the life that we've been given and with the resources that we have. And that not everything is fixable, but we can take actions that are concordant with who we want to be in the world. Speak to somebody out there who might be listening and has the belief that 
it's a dog-eat-dog world, and you need to do what you need to do to get ahead, uh, and other people are cheating, so if you don't want to be left behind, you should uh, compromise your morals uh, when when there's an opportunity, even if you don't like it, because otherwise you're not going to lead a, you're not going to get what you want and be happy. So I think the, f- the first thing that's really important is to recognize that that is a story that we're telling ourselves. And again, instead of judging that story, recognizing that that story comes from a particular place. It might come from a place of hurt or a place where you didn't get what you want or a place where you had to truly fight in the world to be seen. And so instead of pushing that story aside, it can be helpful to say, you know, where does the story come from? Is the story a story that is owning me or do I own the story when the story owns us what it often leads to is us acting in the world in the way that you describe but in ways that are actually not concordant with who we want to be they might be stories that don't serve us they might be stories that drive other people away that drive relationships away that drive connectedness away so I think it's often not about is the story wrong or right, but much more about is the story workable? Is the story serving us? Is the story bringing us closer to a life that is consistent with what we want? The the thing that I have witnessed is people that lead a principled life and trust that they will experience the feelings they're looking for from wealth or recognition or the other things that they're chasing. Those come often in a package they don't expect it to come in. They may not have the money they want, but the peace they feel um, is a peace around the life that is instead of what their idea of it's going to look like Does that yes, make sense? Yes. It, you know, it's, it's a really fascinating thing. I think if there is this idea that we can chase this goal of success or we can chase the goal of happiness. And it's almost like chasing the goal of having that wonderful Thanksgiving dinner in which no one is going to be bitchy with each other yes. and everything's going to go beautifully. There's this beautiful saying that um, expectations are disappointments waiting to happen. (laughs) Now, that doesn't mean that I'm a pessimist, but I think that, you know, what often happens when we set goals, especially goals where we aren't in control of the variables, is there often are expectations that are disappointments waiting to happen. And there can be so much freedom letting go of the goal, particularly when the goal is something that one will never, you, you know, what does achieving success look like? What does achieving happiness look like? These these are not achievable goals. So all we can do as individuals is uh, recognize in ourselves that we can take values, connected steps 
in directions that are purposeful and meaningful to us. You know, even even something like, I want to be a good friend. Okay, so a goal like, I want to be a good friend. What does that look like? And what are steps that you can take today that help you to be a good friend? But it's not like you ever in a checkbox, get the right, you're now a good friend. So it's the same, I think, with our well-being and with our mental health and with life is what are directions that are important and how can we take steps every day concordant with those values, even if it feels uncomfortable, even if it's difficult. That to me is usually a sign that growth is taking place. Uh, when it's outside our comfort zone, but it's in line with the morals that we aspire to. That's that's exactly that's exactly right, and it's, I think it's this again this idea that so much of our growth in my TED talk I actually talk about this idea that discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. A fucking man. It discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. You don't get to have an impact on the world to leave the world a better place. You don't get to raise a family. You don't get to leave the world a better place or to have a meaningful career without stress and discomfort. It doesn't mean that it feels great, but discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. Talk about times though when listening to your discomfort is helpful particularly uh with toxic relationships because there are often times when i believe that your uh emotions are telling you something that um that is a fact so this is so this is exactly so so emotions are emotions are data emotions are data if we can open ourselves up to our emotions not judging them not trying to push them away open ourselves up to them this becomes critical and so when we experience a sense of dissonance or discomfort it can also be helpful to say what is that emotion trying to tell me what is it trying to signal in the book i talk this uh, this talk to this idea of what is the funk? What is the function of the emotion? Um, what is it that this emotion is trying to say? And and being able to connect with that is critical. So it, it would be a way of investigating, is this some, you know, past experience I had um, extrapolating that fear and turning catastrophizing something or is this a chance for me to examine this situation i'm in and ask is it healthy for me you know am i being a doormat am i um getting the respect that any human being is worthy of absolutely because i think that's so so right and it's such an important nuance often we have experiences in our lives or we have stories some of them were written on our mental chalkboards in grade three and those stories become prisons and so we can carry these stories into new relationships new interactions where a particular experience uh, triggers something in us or 
evoke something in us that feels uncomfortable. And it becomes really important to say, you know, is this being evoked by the story that I have that no longer serves me? Or is there something in this present context that truly is disturbing me? And this is a really, really important nuance. And I think when we are emotionally agile, we are able to open ourselves up to the emotion to be able to create space between us and the emotion. And in that space, we are able to investigate and inquire and make values-aligned choices. Again, we aren't driven by our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories. Instead, we're driven by, I value something more for myself in my life and this relationship is not serving that rather than oh you know whenever anyone says this to me i just want to leave which is the story uh two of the biggest things i've gleaned from all the support groups and therapy etc that i've uh done over the last 17 years is compassion is important but not at the expense of compassion for ourselves. And nothing degrades the quality of my life like obsessing about the quality of my life. For me, I had to understand the distinction between self-obsession and healthy self-reflection. Yes. Can you talk about that? Yes, yes. So one of the things that I describe in the book and a bit in the TED Talk as well is this idea that often when people have a difficult emotions, what they do is they either bottle those emotions, pushing them aside, or what they do is they start brooding on those emotions. Mm-hmm. Why am I feeling what I'm feeling? This is terrible. I this shouldn't, is, be, feeling I shouldn't be feeling it. This is awful. And what's just really um, in- incredible when you look at longitudinal studies is people who are dwelling on emotions are often doing it with very good intentions, which is they trying to kind of understand better what's going on. Um, but it actually becomes predictive, for instance, of depression. It, it um, elongates experiences of depression. So, so it, it um, is shown to be a predictor of something that causes our depression to last for longer. So what we want to be able to be with our emotions is not bottling them, but also not brooding on them, being able to notice them for what they are, being able to be compassionate, um, but being able to also get out of our heads mm-hmm. and into our lives, which is what is the thing that I need to do here? What is the change that I need to make? And that becomes critical. And some, you know, again, being able to label our emotions. Um, labeling of emotions is a critical um, aspect of moving from brooding. Which involves judgment usually, into, right? I mean, yes, doesn't judgment almost action. always lead to uh, brooding and self-obsession, which takes yeah. us out of human connection, which is the very thing yes. that can yes. open us up to yeah. healing and feeling a part of yeah. and feeling yeah. peace. Yeah. And, and you know, what's, what's also been fascinating is in uh, there's, there's also this thing where we can start brooding about the fact that we brood. Like, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm brooding and I shouldn't be brooding so much. And, you know, I'm in that. And, and I think a really important thing to recognize is that both bottling our emotions, pushing them aside, and brooding on our emotions often are done with the best of intentions, which is when you bottle your emotions, you're trying to get on with life, get on with the project, get on with the things that you need to do. Brooding on our emotions, I'm trying to understand, I'm trying to inquire. And so they're done with good intentions, but ultimately they are not helpful 
when done in a way that becomes a tendency. There's nothing wrong with pushing your emotions aside when you're going for a job interview and you, you know, have been broke, your girlfriend broke up with you the day before. There's nothing wrong with brooding on our emotions a little bit. It's when this becomes a habitual way of being that it doesn't serve us. And so we need to start learning other ways of opening ourselves to the emotion, being compassionate with ourselves, noticing, understanding values, connecting. What a great uh, segue for you to talk about uh, the power of writing, which you discovered uh, uh, you were raised in South Africa. You lost your father uh, to cancer when you were a little girl. Uh, And another part of uh, the landscape that you had as a child was uh, apartheid was still going yeah. on yeah how did these things inform um your view of the world your view of yourself and any tools that you gained to deal with them yeah so so powerful um so yeah i i grew up i was born into apartheid south africa and i am a white south african and so what you start experiencing is this palpable horror at what is going on around you and the recognition that you know when I was talking about bottling emotions earlier in a sense you know what South Africa was was it was mass scale denial because it's it's denial that makes 50 years of racist legislation possible while people convince themselves that they're doing nothing wrong but I first learned of the destructive power of denial at a personal level um, when I experienced uh, my father's illness and death. And I I remember very clearly, I again talk about this in my TED talk, I remember very clearly my mom coming to me one day and saying to me that I needed to um, go and say goodbye to my father. And my father was, you know, the heartbeat of our home. And the guide and love and warm-handed person in my life. And I remember as a schoolgirl putting my bag down and treading this artery through my home, the pathway to where my father lay dying of cancer. And I said goodbye to him and went off to school, you know, through mathematics and geography and science and biology. And my father died that day. Um, And... So many people came to me and said to me, how are you doing? Or even worse, didn't ask me how I was doing. They simply dropped the mention of the word father from their conversation because they were worried that it was going to upset me. And so what you land up doing is you land up, and, and I'm sure so many of your listeners have this experience, which is you land up experiencing this suffering and it feels so personal. Like here I am, I've lost my father. Um, He wasn't able to keep his small business going. So my mom, we were in incredible financial debt. Creditors were knocking. My mom was trying to raise three children by herself. And so behind closed doors, my family was struggling. And yet people would ask me how I was doing. And I would say, I'm okay. You know, I became the master of being okay. And I have this very clear memory of being in eighth grade and an English teacher handing out notebooks and saying she fixed me with these blue eyes. It was an invitation to the class, but I felt it was an invitation to me. 
write. Write like nobody's reading. Tell the truth. And what I experienced in that journal was literally became the catalyst of my entire career, becoming an emotions researcher, because what I started to realize was that it was going to that emotion, not ruminating on it, not brooding on it, but labeling it, understanding it, understanding the emotion, understanding the regrets and what I valued and who I wanted to be in the world that literally changed the course of my career. And in retrospect, I realized that it was not the, I'm okay, everything's okay, that helped me. It was the showing up to my emotions that ultimately enabled me to um, chart a different course in my life. One of the things that I have discovered in writing about what's happening emotionally is when you need to form something into a sentence, there's it seems to access a different part of your brain than when it's just ping-ponging around and you're ruminating. Talk about that if yeah, you can. Yeah, so there's this fascinating body of research by uh, James Pennebaker. And what they do in these studies, and I'll just show it because it's just really interesting, is what they do is they bring people into a room and they, they divide the, the, the people in two groups. The first group is the control group, and they ask to write about arbitrary stuff. So the cars passing on the street or, you know, what the flowers look like. And the other half is asked to write about emotionally salient, emotionally difficult experiences. So some people in these experiments will write about a a rape or um, one person wrote about how when she was a little girl, how she'd left something on the floor that her elderly grandmother tripped over and this fall ultimately resulted in the grandmother's death. So people are writing about very emotional experiences. And what they do in this research is before the writing, they assess people's physical health, how many times they've been to see the doctor, their depression, their anxiety. People write for 20 minutes a day for three days. And six months later, they reassess people's well-being. And what they find is that this writing is predictive of higher levels of well-being, lower levels of depression, lower levels of anxiety, fewer physical symptoms six months later. So before I get very long-winded, what you start doing is you can start analyzing this writing. And what you find is the people, every, the people who benefit the most from this are people who, instead of dwelling in the writing, are starting to construct sentences that are about insight. So it's you experienced what you experienced and you, you, you wish maybe that you hadn't experienced that thing, but you've experienced it. And what have you learned from it? What have you gained from it? Not in a way that's a Pollyanna, not in a way that's trying to whitewash, but in a way that helps you to get some level of understanding about where you at and what happened is what becomes most powerful. Um, Very, very powerful research. Do you recall anything that you wrote early on um, that you can share with us if you're comfortable? So I don't I don't recall absolute words, but but I I wrote a lot of poetry, for instance, Um, you know, and a A young girl writing poetry. Yeah. And you know what's so what's remarkable is when I did this TED talk, I've got this this notebook that the teacher handed out that I have kept for 30 
years. So when I went onto the TED stage, I actually had that notebook really? with me. And it was just this, and you know, another aspect to the story, which is that this woman who was this teacher, many years later, I, I just realized what an instrumental effect she had had on my life. And so I sent her a surprise bunch of flowers, you know, literally 20 years later. And we're now friends on Facebook. And so she saw the talk and she emailed me in relation to it. This like just incredible experience of connection with this woman. But yeah, I mean, a lot of what I wrote was about um, about regret and and loss and the that recognition I think that I had when my father died, which is that almost no matter what you've done in the situation, that there's always more that you could have done, that there's always some level of regret when you're experiencing the, the death of a person. And I think, you know, when I look back on it, I realize that I really did do the best I could with the life stage that I was at and and who I was at the time. And I think often what happens is when we adults, we we take our adult judginess mm-hmm. and we think why didn't I, you know, do something differently or why didn't I respond differently or why didn't I stand up for myself in a different way? And I think, you know, what we're doing is we, we're taking all of that wisdom of where we might be now, um, but we're not recognizing that we were who we were at the time, doing the best we could at the time. And so that, that extension of self-compassion, again, becomes really critical, that like that little child that you once were needs to be seen and loved. If you could go back in a time machine and mm-hmm. talk to, uh, you were 10 when you lost I, your I father? was 15. My father oh, was 15. 42. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you could go back to talk, the adult you, talk to her when she was struggling the most, what would you say to her or what do you think she would have wanted to hear somebody say? So I'll say two things. The first is what my mother said to me at the time, which is my mother said to me, and I was so angry with her for saying this. She said to me, you don't realize this now, but this is a gift. And what she meant is not that we wished that my father had have died, but what she said to me is, you'll realize that it will shape the texture and compassion and empathy that you're able to experience in your life. And I was so angry with her when she said that, but she was right. She she was right. Um, I think what I would say to my 15-year-old self is y- you are not alone. You feel alone, and the world often is constructed to make you feel alone. But that we share a common imperfect humanity, and we often lose sight of that humanity. And so I think I would have told myself to know that I'm not alone, that even the, I know this sounds completely bizarre, 
but but that even the trees even the the sun even the clouds are somehow kind of bathing one in a sense of light and love and and i i believe that that might sound wonky but but i believe that i think that's a great great thing to to end on um thank you so much we'll put any links uh that that uh, you would like if people want to know more about you or uh read more about you yeah. uh we'll put those under the show notes for uh for this episode um is there anything you'd like to to add before we close? No, just I mean, if people are interested, there's my TED talk, there's the book Emotional Agility, and then uh, I've got a quiz online which is um, takes five minutes to complete, and it's at susandavid.com forward slash learn, and about a hundred thousand people have completed that, and it gives people a free report, and it's around some of these concepts. So if people feel like digging deeper. That's also one way that they can access some of the information. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Really, really enjoyed talking to her. Um, that was so informative. And what a nice person. Um, what if I said that? Really enjoyed talking to her, but what a rotten human being. What, what a monster. What an absolutely helpful monster. Uh, but yeah, check check out her TED Talk and, uh, and go buy her book. Before I read some surveys, I want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to uh, support the podcast if you feel so inclined. Uh, you can support it financially, and we do need financial support. Uh, you can go to um, our website, metalpod.com, and then under the the um, support the show, there's a couple of different things you can do. You can make a one-time donation via PayPal, or you can become a monthly donor through Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, and then you can qualify for little goodies that I put on there sometimes. Sometimes it's a raffle or a hotel room for a podcasting festival, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but all of these things are a way to uh, help keep the show moving uh, because it, it depends greatly on monthly donors, and um, and we need we need more, so... And if you can't see right now, I'm on my knees and I'm on gravel. I don't know why I'm making it extra painful. Maybe because I was raised Catholic. Uh, you can also help the show out by spreading the word through social media. Uh, share posts if you like them. Um, that's, a, that's a way to help it out. I thought it would be appropriate since the subject of a lot of this episode was judging ourselves for feeling what we feel. Uh, I thought it'd be good to read some surveys from the I Shouldn't Feel This Way survey. And I want to thank uh, Mars, who helped put these together. Uh, she volunteered her time. And um, that's another way you can help the show. If you want to be an intern um, or volunteer time, That's there's always stuff that that needs to be done. This is a uh, shouldn't feel this way survey, and it was filled out by a woman who calls herself my stripper name is Floxetine, uh, and then parentheses knee Selexa, and she's in her twenties, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. How would you like to be remembered? I want to be remembered as a kind, loving person. How does it feel writing that? It makes me feel very afraid that I won't and hyper-aware of the times I haven't been kind. 
How would you use a time machine? I'd go get myself on meds sooner. I've always wondered whether that first suicidal period opened a door that I can't ever close again. Um, what do you feel? What feelings do you feel you shouldn't feel? I'm supposed to feel proud of myself for staying alive. Dot, dot, dot. I think, question mark, but I don't. I feel like a lot of people, myself included, are pouring a lot of time and energy into a sinking ship, and I feel like I'm ridiculous, oversensitive, and a burden. How does it make you feel writing your feelings out? It makes me so worried that it's true. Maybe there are some people who don't contribute to the world and won't make a difference whether they live or die, and maybe I'm one of them. I feel like one. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? I don't know. I think that if I were doing good in this world, then I'd at least know about it. Well, let me inform you, young lady. Uh, you sharing about your feelings to another human being is a way of making the world a better place. So um, people are not pouring their energy into a sinking ship. We are all connected. And any little bit you can do to... As cheesy as it sounds, but keep love going between human beings, between yourself and another person, passing that love, accepting love and passing it along to someone else um, is a way of making the world a better place. And it's a hard place to be a sensitive, introspective person. Our modern world, caveman days, it was a cinch. All you did was you you sat on the edge of the cliff and you, you know, waited for the woolly mammoth to come by so you could chuck a spear at it. Today, oh, am I on the right app? Should I change my Bumble profile? This was filled out by What About Me? And uh, she's in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, how'd you like to be remembered? My deep understanding of others suffering because I've been there and healed and been able to connect to people who are still in recovery by giving them a little glimmer of light. How does it feel writing that? I feel proud of myself. Hopeful. I have to say, of all the surveys I've read, almost 3,000 people have taken this particular survey. And it's so rare to have somebody have that kind of self-esteem and confidence um and it's the way that we should all feel but it's so hard to get to that place uh i was joking with somebody the other day that when somebody asks you how you're doing and you want to say okay i always get this feeling that if i say i'm doing great then the universe is going to hear that i'm saying i think the universe is treating me well and it's going to wake up to the fact that it hasn't been mean enough to me lately. And then my life, I've cursed it. I've jinxed it. And then my life is going to go back to being upside down and me being miserable. Um, how would you use a time machine? They skipped that question. Uh, I'm supposed to feel afraid that I've been diagnosed with an eating disorder, but I feel relieved and proud of myself instead that I'm, quote, sick enough to have an eating disorder. It validates the trauma and abuse that I've been through. I felt the same when I was first diagnosed with PTSD. It somehow proves that my mom was actually abusive. How does it feel uh, to write your real feelings out? Makes me feel less crazy. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Not really. Uh, would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better? 
No, because part of it is wanting to feel alone in it, being, quote, more special, more unique, traumatized enough. If other people feel the same, it would take that away. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I used to feel that way. I used to feel that way. And there have been moments in recovery where I've gotten competitive about my sickness or my trauma. But I, I'd like to think that um, I don't, I don't feel that way anymore, and I find comfort in um, being one of many. This was filled out by Unicorn, and she's in her 20s and was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. How would you like to be remembered? My initial response to this question probably is to be someone who was accomplished, but honestly, I want to be remembered as someone that people actually enjoyed being around constantly. Someone that knew the right things to say or do at the right time and never made them feel unloved. I know that that is unrealistic, especially considered considering my borderline personality disorder, but I still hope that one day that could be a possible idea. That is so beautiful. And, my, and, and I understand your concern about having borderline personality disorder, but also remember that a lot of people with BPD, especially people who actively manage it with things like dialectical behavior therapy, are wonderful, caring, sensitive people. And um, I don't think that's unrealistic at all to expect to have that kind of impact on other people. Uh, how does it feel writing that? I feel needy. I wish I didn't need people around to validate my existence so much. But here we are. Yeah, I think we're all nodding our head uh, to knowing that feeling. How would you use a time machine? I would go back in time to my first relationship with the love of my life. Uh, I'm supposed to feel free about being away from my abusive ex-girlfriend, but I don't. I feel hopeless and misunderstood by everyone around me. I felt a special connection with her that I've never felt with anyone else in my entire life. And although she demanded much more from me than I could have possibly given her, it felt good to know at least she wanted me there. Sometimes, even if it was to be her emotional or physical punching bag, even though theoretically I'm much more in control of my life again, part of me found it much easier to be told what was expected of me and how I was to behave to keep her in love with me. Even when she told me how much she hated my guts and it hurt me to my core, at least I could count on her brutal honesty and not be left guessing whether she meant it or not. I'm supposed to feel okay about being independent, but I don't. I feel incredibly anxious and stressed that I'll be alone forever. Thank you. That that is um that that is such a great point about finding more comfort in the fucked up familiar than in the unknown that is promised to be better. How does it make you feel writing your feelings out? Uh, a little bit better, but also ashamed of myself. I don't think you should be. You sound like a human being to me. Uh, do you think you're abnormal? I think so. No, you're not abnormal. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? More than likely, my thoughts and feelings on myself are usually elevated constantly by what other people think. Well, what I think shouldn't matter, but uh, you sound like a lovely, sensitive person uh, who has an awareness um, and in the areas where you are lacking awareness, you are striving to gain more awareness. And that 
is fucking awesome. This is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Mighty Masturbator. And uh, I don't even want to know what that superhero costume looks like. Uh, A bit of backstory for context. About nine years ago, a close friend, and also an ex-girlfriend, took her life. While she was alive, we bonded over music. Uh, We were both in band class and musicians outside of school. And in particular, we particularly, and in particular, we both bonded over Billy Joel. Um, And then parentheses, important for later. But her passing caused a lot of grief and confusion. Throughout the years since I've been, throughout the years since, I apologize for all the tripping, uh, I've been struggling with depression, anxiety, and panic attacks. After a certain amount of time, I started coping with alcohol. Uh, It was bad for a while, having six to 12 drinks a night, but After a while, I saw the issue I had and cut back greatly. But after a lonely night of having a few drinks by myself, staying up late and wallowing in my depression, I said, enough is enough. I use this to, I'm using this to numb myself. I need to stop. And for the past month, I've been sober. I'm going, uh, to start going to AA to see if it will be helpful on top of the therapy I've been doing for the past two years. Sobriety has brought a lot of clarity to my life, and for the first time in years, I'm feeling my emotions. Even if it feels like I'm going through the same wave of feelings as I did years ago when my friend passed, it feels like I'm making progress now. Now, onto the happy moment. A couple of weeks into my sobriety, I was experiencing some emotions regarding my friend who passed, and I was feeling kind of down. I came home to see that my brother sent me a video of my friend that he found while looking through Facebook memories. While watching it, I got emotional, but I felt happy hearing and seeing her after all these years. Not even 10 minutes after I finished the video, my fiancé comes home from work. I was in a vulnerable state and feeling sad, so I was a little distracted when she came in. While my fiancé is winding down after her day, she says to me, I have the most random song stuck on my head and I don't know where it came from. I think it's Billy Joel. Curious, I ask for details on lyrics, and she says something about a a lullaby. I respond, respond kind of baffled with lullaby good night my angel she says yes yes and goes on about her nightly routine this was quite shaking to me because that song i've always strongly associated with my friend's death going as far as performing that song at a benefit concert for her alongside my brother i'm not sure if that was the biggest coincidence of my life but it really got me thinking that maybe she's watching over me I'm not religious in any way, but having that happen brought comfort to me. When I brought it up in therapy, my therapist, who's also not religious, if anything, uh, a bit spiritual, said this is a sign that I'm on the right path and that maybe it was her way of telling me that. We both agreed the coincidence was way too uncanny. But in that moment, I couldn't help but feel like I'm on my way to making progress and that it feels nice. If anything, overwhelming. Also, that I miss my friend so much and that I hope she's watching over. Since that moment, I've been looking for little clues that maybe she's still around. It was a bittersweet moment, one that made me miss my friend, but in the end, happy. That's beautiful. And I know some people are probably rolling their eyes at, you know, the, oh yeah, the fucking heavens are... I believe in that. I believe in that. I've experienced so many things that are just beyond coincidence um 
usually at really, really heavy moments in my life when I'm craving some type of comfort. Um, so what I'm saying is uh, anybody that wants to send me some big sciency email or get on their, you know, soapbox about um, how anybody who isn't an atheist is stupid, uh, go fuck yourself. This is from the same survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Dante Alighieri. Am I pronouncing that right? I know that's a uh, character from literature. Isn't that the guy from uh, <laughs> the guy from Dante's Inferno? Yeah, that's an ABC show, right? The guy from Dante's Inferno. Uh, let's see what he writes. He is in his twenties. He was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, how would you like to be remembered? I don't really have an opinion. He skipped the next two questions. And then um, he writes, I wanted to share this, but I wasn't sure which survey was right. This one seemed to fit. There's this stupid feeling I get sometimes. It's more of a reaction, but who am I kidding? Everything is feeling for me nowadays. It always feels the same, but it happens in so many different scenarios. For instance, I noticed a girl in a Starbucks while I was pretending to be productive. Why do I notice her? Well, she's extremely cute, definitely my type, in a weekend hoodie, uh, tied back hair, chewing gum, headphones in ear, round glasses with wire rims, extremely focused and busy. I note that she definitely isn't wearing uh, her best, a sign that she is comfortable here and taking a day off. However, in the back of my head, I think that is probably because she is already in a relationship foreshadowing too strong question mark of course she doesn't notice me i certainly never get noticed or nor do i expect it i try to focus on being productive myself but i keep glancing at her i wonder who she is what her name is what she dreams of doing or being what are her aspirations what is she like and could she be my friend then like ice water pouring down my head dread leaks in a cool and attractive man sits next to her she greets him with a smile. It is so foolish. I don't even know her. I never even said one word to her, and yet it feels like I just lost someone and was rejected. My mood is completely shut down, and now I'm depressed. The logical side of my brain knows this doesn't make sense, which causes my emotions to spiral more. A feedback loop of negativity. I know the right response should have been disappointment and, oh well, that's too bad, but he looks nice, or something along those lines. However, my emotional response is a factor of a hundred times more intense for no reason. The thoughts that exist in my head are now, you're alone, you will always be alone, nobody likes you, you don't deserve friendship nor companionship, you are trash, die. How does it make you feel to write your feelings out? Numb and crazy. Do you think you're abnormal to some degree, but I know that there is likely someone else that experiences something similar. Yes. And one of those people just read your survey. This was filled out and thank you for that. That was such, that was, uh, you might be Dante cause that was like poetry. The way you, the way you describe that, um, 
was so just a laser beam. This is spelled... <laughs> oh, the names never cease to amaze me. This is filled up by a woman who calls herself Daniel Radcliffe's delicious asshole. It's actually one of my favorite casseroles. Um, and it has to be served hot. Or at least above 98.6. Uh, she's in her 20s, raised in a totally chaotic environment. Really, a woman who calls herself Daniel Radcliffe's delicious asshole was raised in chaos? Um, how would you like to be remembered? I would like to be remembered for helping others and for being an example of recovery. How does it feel writing that? A little self-absorbed absorbed and somewhat unattainable. How would you use a time machine? I would go back to 2010 and get help for my drinking and drug use sooner. If I could avoid getting the felony on my set, on my record, I think I would have a lot more opportunity now. At the same time, I wouldn't change any of that because I don't think I would be the woman I am today without all of my experiences. Um, yeah, isn't it funny how, how I, I find myself sometimes wanting to have the exp- wanting to have the knowledge I gained from the bad experiences, but not having hurt anyone or looked bad. Uh, I'm supposed to feel happy about being in a committed relationship, but I don't. I think about cheating on my boyfriend all the time. I'm supposed to be happy that I'm five years sober, but I don't. I want to get fucked up still. I wish I could smoke crack and drink cheap vodka and not have any consequences. I'm supposed to have compassion for my siblings who struggle with addiction, but I don't. I feel disgust and annoyance because if I can get sober, anyone can, right? Um... I feel like an asshole. I know the constant thoughts of cheating are because I am worried about my finances. I just want something to make me feel different, and I can't do drugs, so sex is the next best thing. Uh, I had the same fuck buddy for about five years, and I want nothing more than to have sex with him, but could I live with myself after I cheat? Probably not. I would drink. Do you think you're abnormal? No. Uh, I, from others in my support group, Oh, I think there's a word missing. Uh, I know from others in my support group that these are normal alcoholic thoughts. Yeah. Uh, Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? It makes me feel less crazy. Yeah. You are a human being, man. The addict brain. It's a... uh, You know, they they call it whack-a-mole where you, you get one addiction under control. Um... One of the things that I found is untreated trauma, um, dealing with that and treating that, um, especially with the right program, um, can go a long, long way towards um, keeping keeping the the, the whack-a-mole from being just a state of, of chaos and getting to a point of hopelessness. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Quantum. She's in her 30s. And uh, how'd you like to be remembered? Remembered? Only my family who can't get along or agree on anything would notice I'm gone. How does it feel writing that? I've become accustomed to the idea. How would you use a time machine? I'd go to the future to see how my baby turns out. That way, if it's good, I would feel okay if I died now. 
Uh, I'm supposed to feel grateful about my mom staying until March to help with the baby, but I don't. I feel nervous. I'm supposed to feel contentment about my baby finally being here, but I don't. I feel anxious about the future. I'm supposed to feel ready to have another baby, but I don't. I feel tired, finished. I'm supposed to feel grateful about being able to breastfeed, but I don't. I feel deprived of my Adderall. I'm supposed to feel grateful about my grandmother staying here with the baby, but I don't. I feel like a giant buffer between her and my mother. How does it make you feel to write your real feelings out, overwhelmed and uncertain about the future, even more than one would anticipate because I just just birthed a child? Um, Do you think you're abnormal? Everyone says how wonderful it is to have mom around to help and stay with the baby and how wonderful it will be that the baby won't have to do daycare. They also say I should feel so amazing about the baby that I should be thinking about another one already. Um, Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better? I don't know about better, but we should form our own support group to figure out how to get through this. And one of the reasons why I wanted to read this is because Everything that you have described is so, so common. And there is nothing inherently wrong with you uh, in in terms of your character. Um, But there could be chemical things going on. It could just be the fact that you don't have the the Adderall. Um, I'm assuming you were taking that as prescribed. Uh, Now, I'm not a doctor, but I am a hypochondriac, and that has to count for something. But seriously, um, we've done a bunch of episodes on this podcast about postpartum depression, about the pressure of being a mother, um, society's expectations, the competitive nature oftentimes of uh, mothers feeling like they have to be perfect, um, all of the things that you've listed. Um and it sounds to me like like there's some unresolved issues in your family between your mom and your grandmother. And this is a time for you to take care of yourself. And just because someone is logistically going to be helping you out doesn't necessarily mean that that's an overall win if it's taking an emotional toll on you having a, a person in your life who is toxic. And I don't know what your relationship is, but there's just a little hint in here that makes it feel like uh, there's some unresolved stuff uh, in your um, in your family. And there is support out there. So go through um, our catalog, uh, type in um, a postpartum depression or PPD um, or pregnancy, um, and, or, or Google it, type in mental pod and then, you know, baby or mother or, um, and you'll find a bunch of episodes. Um, there is a guest that I've had on uh, multiple times, uh, named Dr. Jessica Zucker. Um, she is a psychologist and her specialty is, um, uh, mental health and, uh, women's, uh, reproductive, um, its relation, the interrelation between uh, women's reproductive uh, issues and their mental health. I know there's a better way to put that than I am. Um, she's um, she likes to talk about uh, gals and babies and sadness. That's a new character. That's the sum it up guy. 
Um, but thank you for that. I, I cannot, I know I, it sounds like I probably say this too much, but I don't read, um, I, I don't bullshit when I say you are not alone. This is something that is really common and that there is helpful for. There is help for and not to suggest that it's going to be an overnight fix um, or it's not going to be um, complicated, uh, but there's hope. Yeah, there's hope. Oh, his teeth also whistle like mine. Uh... This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Guilty Pleasure. She writes, As an art student, I took many drawing classes that had nude models. One class, our model couldn't make it, but the professor didn't want to cancel class. She found a substitute in a guy that I had been pining after for a couple of years. I saw a lot more than I was prepared for that day. That has to be um, weird. Um, not weird in a moral sense, but a mixed feeling of you're doing this intellectual thing and yet you're also feeling this, uh, sexual vibe, um, from it. Or maybe it was uncomfortable for you. I don't know. Let's see. Thank you for sharing that though. I I always wondered that though in art class. What's it like for the person who's posing? What's it like for the people who are um, drawing? And I'm sure it depends on the people. No, it's the same for every single person. Because we are all robots. Thank you for listening. Good night. Uh, This is filled out by Catnip Banana. Uh, I just have to read this uh, on... uh, Do you identify as gay, straight, bi, or asexual, or other? And uh, she writes, I dislike such social constructs, but I mostly like dick. Now that's a t-shirt. I mostly like dick. (laughs) I fucking love that. I, I think we should put both of those out. I mostly like dick, and I mostly like pussy. We are getting on that. And you think I'm kidding. I wonder if above it, it should say, I don't believe in social constructs, but, and then on the back, it says that. And then you put it on and you spend the day walking around Disneyland, just getting into arguments. All right. How would you like to be remembered? Oh, let's see what kind of an environment was she raised in. Pretty dysfunctional. She's in her 20s. How'd you like to be remembered? She was kind, loving, and compassionate and used her compassion to help others. Also, she was an epic, crazy cat person. How does it feel writing that? Nothing. I'm depressed as fuck right now. How would you use a time machine? I wouldn't. I would lie in bed in my debilitating depression, feeling my heavy body sinking into the mattress and my bones ache from pure fatigue. Then I would stare at that machine and feel guilty that I'm not making use of such a rare opportunity. Then feel obligated to use it somehow just to not waste it, but really can't come up with the energy, motivation, or curiosity to give a fuck or get up, so I'll just end up remaining in bed, but now annoyed 
that this fucking machine is making my already shitty experience shittier by making my to-do list longer and making me hate myself more for not doing shit I should be doing, e.g. making use of a fucking time machine and adding to my guilt and psychic weight. It is one of the most brilliant sections of a survey I have ever read. If you're not a writer, you should be. Um, I'm supposed to feel connected and safe when in session with my therapist, whom I love and respect and is my first ever secure attachment figure and absolute cha- absolutely changed my life, but I don't. I've been feeling disconnected and dead in therapy for the past month, and it frustrates me that I'm in this rut because I crave for the little sliver of human connection I get when I see my therapist. I also resent him for breaking down my defenses and making me emotionally vulnerable because it's all so new and I've never felt this exposed and I'm scared shitless. I want to hug him and tell him I love him, not romantically, but a much deeper loving bond I feel towards him. But I can't because the thought of being that vulnerable petrifies me. So instead, for the past month, I just sit in therapy, silent, not wanting to say anything, even though I have so many things to say and I'm so frustrated and deprived of connection that I just can't make myself be a cooperative adult and just fucking talk. I've been through something like this before, where the silent sessions lasted for over two months. Turns out I was working on something in my unconscious mind, and at the end of the silence told my therapist about a piece of my childhood trauma that I had erased from my memory. I know I'm probably working through some shit right now, just like I was last time, but I'm so fucking frustrated I could cry. That was like a tornado of fucking awfulsome, beautiful, heartfelt, sad brilliance. Um, how does it make you feel writing your real feelings out? Hungry, but I'm too tired and unmotivated to go get food from my kitchen. You think you're abnormal for feeling what you do. God knows. Would knowing other people feel the same make you feel better about yourself? Nope. Getting over this will make me feel better. And yeah, I know about the not trying to fix a feeling and just welcoming and letting it be blah, 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 blah. But it's really, really, really fucking hard. I've only begun to feel feelings in my body for about five months and it's all new and overwhelming and my feelings can manifest themselves in strong physical pain to the point where I just want to curl up in bed and writhe in agony and die. No, I'm not physically ill. I can now tell the difference between physical pain and psychosomatic pain. I'm just a fucking mess right now and meanwhile my brain is trying to shit on me for my uncreative swearing in this survey. Fuck. You are my new best friend. You are my new best friend. You are a special person. That was... While I am sorry that you are going through this, the laughter and the feeling of connectedness that you gave not only me, but I think every person listening to this podcast um, is beautiful. This is a happy moment filled out by Brown-Eyed Girl. And um, she writes, uh, This starts off a bit heavy, but hang in there. 
About five months ago, I was hit by a flatbed truck. (laughs) Oh, not another flatbed truck happy moment. I'm so tired of flatbed truck moments. Uh, I was, I've read this before, so it's okay. I know that, uh, it is a genuine happy moment. Um, about five months ago, I was hit by a flatbed truck. Um, I also, why, I wonder why it being a flatbed makes any difference. You know, I'm impressed. You had me at truck. Uh, I was hit by a flatbed truck while I was walking in a crosswalk. I am one of the 15% uh, of vehicle versus pedestrians to survive. Post-collision, I was unable to participate in my career, which I love, engage in lifting weights or flowing with yoga, which both fuel my soul or even feel the light inside of me. I had a very intensive bout with agoraphobia, unable to leave my home as the crosswalk I was struck in lived right outside of my apartment. I couldn't even leave after my toilet clogged and stayed that way for over a week until my mom drove three hours to come help me. My depression, anxiety, and pain consumed my every waking moment. These things all led me to try to take my own life. The heaviness of my body after waking up to an OD of muscle relaxants was as if my innards had been replaced with almost solidified cement, but just soft enough to shuffle to the bathroom to puke up an empty stomach. This attempt was two and a half months ago, and today I am the happiest I have ever been in my life. I'm back to massaging, back to lifting, and practicing my daily yoga. I'm fueling my body rather than just filling it, and I have met someone who makes life worth living and makes my light shine ever so brightly. I listen to this podcast often and can relate so heavily to so many of the dark darkest of the thoughts shared here. So I wanted to share with you all, it gets better. Listen to your heart when it is trying to tell you what it is you need to be happy and love yourself enough to act upon those things. I am so grateful my attempt was unsuccessful and cannot believe where I am compared to five months back. Do not give up, my friends. It gets better when you let it. And I would also add, and when you seek help and let other people help you. Yeah. Maybe that's what she was trying to say, and maybe I shouldn't have butted it in. Huh? Thank you for that. That's amazing. That is amazing. Uh, you know, I was going to read a shame and secret survey, um, but I... Uh, uh, and I'm, I feel like we got a good uh, a good moment right here to end on this one. Uh, It's a happy moment filled out by Noyoki, and she she writes, I was 10 and obsessed with horses, as many are. My mom told me to put my shoes on. We were going. I figured we were going to some store for something until she turned into a trail ride farm. She surprised me with an hour trail ride out of nowhere. I was so happy, I don't even have words. I remember crying when I first got on the horse, Ronnie. I remember the horse's name. It was so far from the ground. I tried to remember everything I've read. I tried to remember everything I'd read about riding 
throughout the ride, and afterwards the trail leader asked how long I've been riding. It was my first time. I just remember the joy and gratefulness and love for my mom. Um, you're asking yourself, Paul, did we really just end on a horsey story? And I just want to say, yes, we did. I am not afraid to end on a little girl loves horsey rides moment because I am not afraid of that soft part of myself. That's right. In fact, maybe I'll bring this survey to my next hockey game and I will read it to the guys in the locker room and say, hey, I ain't afraid of what you think of me. How about a little taste of a little girl and a horsey story? Huh? You guys might even tear up. Heartless bastards. You know what What really moved me about this, and it to me is such an ex- a great example of ways that parents can show love to their kids is by listening to them share what they're passionate about and embracing that part of them. Um, it, it, it just, it's, I've yet to read a survey. I've read probably 30,000 surveys since I started doing this podcast. And I've yet to read one person look back fondly on something, a gift that was given to them of, you know, large financial value. The happiest moments are always when that person's authenticity was seen by somebody else, whether it was a parent or a boyfriend or girlfriend or friend. And I think if we could just try to remember in our day that we make it too much about us and not enough about seeing other people, um, not in a codependent way, but just in a listening um, because I'm not good at it, man. I'm so trapped in my fucking head with my own bullshit throughout the day. Um, it's one of the reasons I didn't have kids. <laughs> I just sat in my recliner and said, horses are stupid. Now, if you don't mind, can I listen to the game? I'd like to think I'd have been better than that. But um, anyway, I hope you guys got something out of our, our uh, episode. And... Um, I hope after listening to this, any of you who spend a lot of time judging yourself for feeling what you feel um, are doing a little bit less now, um, at least for the next five minutes. And then, you you know, at ease, back to, back to, back to the crazy farm. But um, just never forget you're not alone and... There is help all around us. It's just a matter of humbling ourselves and asking for it and um, being willing to try it when it comes in forms that we may not want to try. Um, And thanks for listening. 
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.